Peace be upon you. So recently on the YouTube channel, the impactful scholar, and for those who aren't familiar with this channel, I highly recommend it. It's got a lot of really good content. The host, Dr. Javad Hashmi, interviewed the Oxford scholar, Dr. Joshua Little. And recently, Dr. Little has been getting a lot of attention for his dissertation regarding the Hadith corpus and the supposed age of Aisha. Dr. Little shows that this age depicted in the Hadith that, the, uh, that Aisha was six years old when she got married and nine years old when she consummated the marriage is most likely political propaganda to say that she was part of the Prophet's house at an earlier time frame than she actually was. And in this interview, Dr. Little presents 21 reasons why historians are skeptical of the Hadith literature. And this interview is over three hours long. I've personally listened to it twice. There's a lot of awesome content in it. And if you have the time, I recommend to listen to it yourself. But what I wanted to do in this episode is try to summarize these 21 points and also add some of my own commentary on top of it. So the first reason that Joshua Little gives is that uh, what he calls prior probability. So he's saying, look, when historians study the material from pagans, Jews, and Christians, what they find is that a lot of this material is fabricated, that it's unreliable, that it's biased. And it would be naive to think that the Hadith corpus written, you know, so many years after the Prophet would be any different. And this is compounded by the fact that the people at that time were of numerous factions, tribes, uh, theological understandings, uh, that they had competing theor theories, they had skirmishes, they had battles, they had multiple civil wars, they had the Rita Wars. All of this creates an environment where individuals will have strong incentives to fabricate sources to strengthen their stance. Additionally, at this time, there was no rigorous scholarship in institutions for collecting, uh, preserving, transmitting this material. This was all done as an ad hoc basis from individuals. And all this opens the opportunity for uh, a lot of sloppy work to enter the Hadith corpus. The second reason that uh, Joshua Little gives is that it says the lateness of the sources. So most Hadith literature compiled in collections first occurred in the 8th century. Some of the earliest writings that historians are aware of are from Ibn Ashaq, who died around the year 767, nearly 135 years after the death of the Prophet. But historians don't even have his direct material but instead are relying on the material from his students and his students' students, uh, who references his material. Even the earliest written compilation of Hadith uh, was that of the Muwatta by Imam Malik, which was written 150 years after the death of the Prophet. So the source material is quite distant from the actual source, and time causes errors, distortions, fabrications, contaminations. The third point he brings up is that the Hadith corpus is full of contradictions. And Dr. Hashmi has this awesome quote. He says, for every Hadith, there is an equivalently valid opposite Hadith. That for any argument you have, you can find a Hadith that says the opposite of it. Even the simplest facts in the Hadith corpus are inconsistent. For example, the question of how long did the Prophet live in Mecca and Medina and what age was he when he died? If you just consult the compilations, the Sahih compilations from Bukhari and Muslim, uh, you'll get the ages that he was 60 years old, 63 years old, and 65 years old. Some of these conflicting ages are also supposedly transmitted from the same individual. 
So again, this forms a very stark contradiction. But this also carries to the ages of Abu Bakr and Uthman, where we know historically they lived much longer than what's in the Hadith corpus. So all this points to the fact that if the Hadith, you know, the Sahih, supposedly Sahih Hadith, are so fundamentally wrong on these basic facts, how much more uh, inaccurate are they going to be on the more nuanced topics? At the one hour and one min mark, Dr. Hashmi says that he has done extensive research in this uh, field of the contextualization of the verse of the Quran through the Hadith. And he has concluded that these Hadith are pure speculation. And they have a quote from the historian Herbert Berg. It says, it is not uncommon for Ibn Abbas Hadith to present three or even four contradictory interpretations of the same verse. So he's saying that in essence, again, you know, these sources, that they're supposed to be reliable, they're supposed to be authentic, that they are consistently found to be contradictory, even when they come from the supposed same narrator. The fourth point is that many hadith are political propaganda of its time. And this shows, again, an as aspect of unreliability. This is on par to trying to understand history by listening to the political ad campaigns today. You know, if someone goes hundreds of years into the future and all they have of our society are the political ad campaigns, how distorted is their view of reality of what actually transpires is it going to be? A lot of this hadith, uh, it attempts to justify why one person or one group was closer or more beloved to the prophet than another and sometimes the opposite. Some examples are that Aisha was the best believer among the women, that she was Muhammad's favorite wife, that Ali was to Muhammad as Aaron was to Moses, that the Muslims must be led by an individual from the Quraysh, and it is justified and promoted to kill certain groups of people irrespective of their belief. In the interview, they cite the historian Jonathan Brown in one of his articles. It reads, As generations of Western scholars have demonstrated, even the revered Sahian are replete with anachronistic reports that grew out of political, legal, and secretarian feuds of the first two centuries of Islam. And this quote parlays into the fifth point, that of historical anachronisms. Prophecies specified in the Hadith can be lumped into two groupings, either precise or ambiguous. And it just happens that the prophecies that are very precise in nature discuss events that occurred before the 9th century, just as Hadith criticism became more prevalent and methods for detecting clear fabrications were established. So just as the populace became more suspicious and scrutinizing of Hadith, the prophetic Hadith also became more open to interpretation, less precise and more ambiguous. This indicates that most likely the very detailed prophecies in the Hadith literature were created post facto from the event it foretold. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense why precise prophecies after the establishment of Hadith criticism would all of a sudden stop. You know, that it's more likely that as the criticism built up, the ability for people to fabricate false prophecies post facto diminished. That's the reason that you see the prophecies, again, are very precise up until that point. And then afterwards, whatever prophecies are still within the Hadith corpus, they become vague in nature. The sixth point is the supernatural elements. You know, many Hadith make supernatural claims attributed to the Prophet. 
And this is obvious that historians do not uh, accept supernatural claims. But we have to consider that, you know, what are these claims that are made in the Hadith corpus? So it says that, for instance, that uh, the Prophet split the moon in half, that from his finger a fountain of water flowed for over a thousand people to perform ablution, that his food would glorify God as he ate, that he had the ability to make trees walk to shade him as he relieved himself, that a tree wept loudly when uh, he stopped giving sermons using it as a uh, pulpit, uh, that trees and stones talked to the prophet, that he was able to stop the sun, you know, and uh, delay the, uh, the the afternoon, that he was able to command the rain, that he was able to pray for the manifestation of food and water for the masses. You know, the historical reasons for these claims to be doubtful is because they're supernatural. But as a believer who does believe in miracles, you know, am I justified to rejecting these claims because the Quran is replete with miracles? And the answer is yes, because the Quran specifically states that the Prophet did not receive a physical miracle like that what was given in the past. In Surah 10, verse 20, it's very clear. It says, they say, so these are the people at the time of the Prophet, how come no miracle came down to him from his Lord? Say, so this is the Prophet's response. The future belongs to God, so wait and I'm waiting along with you. So this shows that he did not have a physical miracle. If, on the other hand, that his miracles were as uh, ubiquitous, as frequent as it's made in the Hadith literature, when such a claim was made, if only at a miracle, he'd point to all these occasions. But four times in the Quran, the, they, uh, he's asked if only a miracle could come down to him from his Lord. So obviously, if he had a miracle, if he had all these miracles that the Hadith literature is claiming, then he would just appoint it to them. But God is telling him, say, the future belongs to God. I am uh, wait and I'm waiting along with you. Meaning that he did not have these physical miracles like what was given in the past. His miracle was strictly the Quran. And this is also specified in Surah 17 verse 59. It says, what stopped us from sending the miracles is that the previous generations have rejected them. For example, we showed Thamud the camel a profound miracle, but they transgressed against it. We sent the miracles only to instill reverence. So this is informing us that those kinds of miracles were limited to the past. That again, the miracle of the prophet was strictly the Quran alone. You know, another criticism I get when I say that I reject the miracles specified in the Hadith and I only accept what's in the Quran is they say, well, why don't you feel the same way about the miracles specified in the Quran? And the reality is it's because they're in the Quran that I accept them. You know, if someone came and told me that, hey, I saw someone, you know, take a, a clay bird and breathe life into it and turn it into a live bird, I would say, okay, you're making this up. You know, there was some sleight of hand going on. But strictly because it's in the Quran, because this is God's divine word, I accept it. But this is not the case of the Hadith corpus, because these are narrations from individuals who are making a claim. And if they're going to make the claim, they need to produce the evidence. And that is something that's yet to be seen. I mean, a lot of these supposed miracles in the Hadith, you would think that it was as frequent, as abundant as they make it out to be. There would be thousands of testimonies to this. But ironically, some of these miracles, you know, there's only one narrator or maybe a couple and that's it, right? If he was able to have a stream flow out of his uh, finger where a thousand people 
people were able to do evolution, or he split the moon, or he made the sun stop, you would think that there would be individuals who would testify to this, you know, outside of even the Hadith corpus. Because can you imagine, you know, uh, across the world, how many millions of people st stared at the moon that night, and not a single other source is saying that it split in two. So this shows that, again, most likely, this is a fabrication. The seventh point is the mass fabrication of Hadith, that it's well established that there was a fabrication crisis of epic proportions predominantly during the Umayyad rule. It was such a large problem that to counter the claims of unreliability of Hadith, the entire field of Hadith sciences had to be formed. Because again, if all the Hadith were truthful, you wouldn't need the Hadith sciences to determine which ones were truthful and which ones were falsified. As a personal note, any field that inserts the word science into its name is typically far from an actual science. So the fact that they have to call it Hadith sciences is a sad attempt to build legitimacy to something that is a pseudoscience. In this part of the interview, they, they make certain quotes. This is from Suba al-Hajjaj, who died in 777. It says, Verily, you can barely find anyone before me scrutinizing these hadith whose investigation was more comparable to my investigation, nor anyone whose search for the hadith was comparable to my search. I have examined it the Hadith corpus, and discovered that not even a third thereof is sound or authentic. It also states, I do not know of anyone who scrutinized Hadith whose investigation was comparable to my investigation. I discovered that three quarters thereof were false. Another uh, quote uh, that they cited was from Abdullah bin uh, Lahaya, uh, who died in 789. It says, a heretic uh, who had repented of his false doctrine spoke to me. He said, examine carefully from whom you have taken these hadith. For verily, whenever we reasoned our way to a doctrine, we would turn it into a hadith. So here's a supposed testimony from someone who's saying, look, I used to fabricate hadith. So be careful again who you're getting this information from. Uh, and then the uh, fourth quote was from uh, Yahya bin Sayyid uh, al-Katan, which says, I have not seen the pious in any regard being more dishonest than they are in regards to Hadith. You know, it's even documented that Bukhari himself went through 600,000 Hadith, of which he considered only less than 1% as authentic. So he deemed 99% of the Hadith that he's gone through as inauthentic, that it didn't pass the test for being considered a Sahih. Additionally, if you look at the introduction of Sahih Muslim, he mentions large compilations of Hadith that were deemed unreliable and how uh, hadith should not be accepted by certain prolific narrators because they were found, again, to be unreliable. So since hadith are swimming in a sea of fabrication, this makes the entire corpus suspect. The eighth point is regarding the late establishment of isnad, and isnad is the chain of transmitters for any given hadith. The requirement for utilizing a chain of transmitters did not occur until after the second fitna, which is around the year 685 to 687 in Kufa. This practice did not become commonplace till about the 8th century. 
So even though it was first established there, again, it wasn't commonplace until then. By this time, there were many competing interests, much contention, infighting, civil wars, and overall less unity and more arguing factions looking for support for their understandings. This pressure for authenticity pushed a lot of transmitters to create isnads post facto to increase the perceived validity of their narration. They cite Ibn Sirin, who died in 729. It says, They did not use to ask for the Isnad, but when the fitna occurred, they said, Name for us your transmitters. Then whoever was considered al-Sunnah, their hadith would be taken, and whoever was considered al-Albida, the innovators, their hadith would not have been taken. Another quote they cite is from the historian Matsuki, who says, Studies have shown that the custom of asking one's teachers about their information arose at the end of the first century Hijra, then slowly spread in the course of the second century. In Mecca, asking about the Nisnad didn't begin until the start of the second century, in Iraq even later. So as this uh, practice started proliferating, it took time before it became even commonplace, it means that the Isnad was created much later in history. The ninth point, is regarding how the, uh, the Hadith uses certain words compared to how they were classically used uh, predominantly in the Quran. So for instance, take the word itself, Sunnah. If you look at the Quran consistently, you will never see this concept of the Sunnah of the Prophet. This was a terminology that was applied, again, post facto, you know, years, we're talking about 100, 150, 250 years after the Prophet, that we start seeing this terminology used in this way. If you look at the Quran, uh, the word sunnah is typically associated with God's system. So, for instance, in Surah 33, verse 62, it says, This is God's eternal sunnah. You will find that God's sunnah is unchangeable. In Surah 33, verse 38, it says, The Prophet is not committing an error by doing anything that is made lawful by God, such as God's sunnah, since the early generations. God's command is a sacred duty. Now, this isn't just the word sunnah. A lot of these terminology that is prolific right now in Hadith corpus, even in uh, modern uh, Islamic studies, the way that it's used in the Quran is just fundamentally different. You know, other examples of this is the word Hadith. You know, nowhere in the Quran is it used to mean exclusively the sayings of the Prophet. You know, people know that this means narrations, but it's taken an entire new terminology post facto. The word Athar, which is another name uh, for uh, hadith, which means, you know, in modern speak, tradition. You know, if you look at the Quran, this means footsteps. It means relics. But this terminology later on down the road has uh, used in reference to this hadith corpus. The word ayat, right? Ayat in the Quran predominantly means a sign or a miracle. You know, later on, it's taken the meaning of an individual verse or set of verses of the Quran or the concept of a khalifa. In the Quran, a khalifa is a ruler, a successor, and is not used in the sense of someone who's a ruler of a society. Usually you'll see the Quran use the term as a mullah, uh, a leader or a chief, uh, or uh, the concept of an imam, again, a leader. But the fact is that these terminologies, uh, post facto, meant these things. And the entire claim is, if the usage of these words occurred in a later date, if someone has a hadith that claims that the Prophet used these terms in the way that they were uh, constructed hundreds of years later, then this shows an inconsistency in the language. And this is another form of anachronisms, where again, something from a later date is being interjected into an earlier supposed narration.
The tenth point is the rapid numerical growth in Hadith. For the first 150 years after the death of Muhammad, Hadith were deliberately not openly written, let alone compiled into books. We discussed this in a previous episode and how this practice was frowned upon by the Prophet and the Companions and later became part of the religious literature in the 9th century. So for instance, in the uh, Hadith of Muslim 3004, it says, Allah's Messenger said, Do not write anything about me, and whoever wrote about me other than the Quran, he should erase it. So again, there's very strong language and a very strong precedent to show that the uh, written form of Hadith was condemned, it was prohibited, it was frowned upon uh, until about 150 years after the death of the Prophet. Additionally, there are many Hadith that state that some of the most uh, cited narrators of Hadith actually only had a very small number of Hadith. And this not only forms a contradiction, uh, it shows that the earlier uh, narrations uh, have fewer accounts for the individual. And then later on, as the corpus grew, all of a sudden these people who supposedly only had you know, a handful of Hadith have thousands of Hadith attributed to them. So for example, Ibn Umar is considered the second most prolific narrator of Hadith after Abu Huraira. But this seems contradictory to the Hadith by Ibn Majah, number 26, where it says that I sat with Ibn Umar for a year and did not hear him narrate anything from the Messenger of Allah. That the entire year he sat with him, he did not hear him narrate a single Hadith. Now, how is this person supposed to be the second most prolific narrator of Hadith? The interview also cites a quote from uh, Fasawi, it says, I have never heard Jabir, meaning Ibn Zayd, say that the Messenger of God had said. Yet the young men around here are saying the Messenger of God said 20 times an hour. And I never knew of Jabir uh, having narrated from the Messenger of God more than 15 or 16 hadith or thereabouts. So again, this shows that there is this, you know, uh, proliferation of hadith many, many years after the Prophet's death that this was not commonplace, and this also corresponds with history. In a quote from the historian Patricia Crone, uh, she states the following regarding Ibn Abbas, who's one of, the, again, the most prolific supposed narrators of Hadith. And I'm going to paraphrase. So she's saying that, look, Bukhari examined some 600,000 Hadith, of which he retained 7,000, meaning 593,000 Hadith he deemed as inauthentic. Ibn Hanbal, assuming he went through a similar number of hadith, he retained 30,000 hadith, including repetitions. And of Ibn Hanbal's uh, traditions, 1,710, including repetitions, are transmitted by the companion Ibn Abbas. But if you look at scholars uh, who lived 50 years before Ibn Hanbal, they estimate that at most Ibn Abbas only heard 9 to about 10 different traditions from the Prophet. So one has to ask, how is it possible that over a span of 50 years that it, the, the narrations attributed to Ibn Abbas went from 10 to 1,710? Where did all these hadith from Ibn Abbas come from? You know, and the question is, if this is how many came at, you know, if they were saying that 10 are attributed to him around the year 800, you know, how many fewer were attributed to him in the year 700 or 632 after the death of the Prophet. Even if we accept that 10 of Ibn Abbas's traditions are authentic, how do we identify them in the pool of 1700 traditions? This trend shows that as time went on, more and more Hadith were being created. 
If the Hadith were coming from legitimate earlier sources, we would expect that this would be reversed, with more Hadith being cited in earlier dates and less Hadith being cited in later dates. You know, consider, for instance, we have these ancient authors, you know, scholars, and we know of some of their material because later generations reference it, even if we don't have the original material. But it's absurd to think that later generations are going to cite more material from them and assume that the earlier generations just weren't aware of this material. That just wouldn't be logical. The 11th point that's brought up is the absence of Hadith and early sources. That again, we don't have the citation to Hadith or uh, written copies of the Hadith until much later in time. And there was a quote from uh, Patricia Crone and Hines that basically says prophetical Hadith in particular are largely or even completely absent in the historical record. That it's not until around the mid-8th uh, century that you see Hadith becoming a focus of the religion. The twelfth point is retrojecting or raising of Hadith. So what does this mean? If you look at the Hadith corpus, it's riddled with identical Hadith, first being narrated by a follower, then a companion, and eventually the Prophet. So we see a progression of a Hadith being a general narration, you know, similar to like a proverb in later generations, to slowly becoming repurposed to associate the narration to a direct quote from the Prophet. And this is done for the sake of, again, giving authenticity or validity to this uh, statement. As stated in the interview, all of this is consistent with general process of progressive retroaction. Over the course of the second and third uh, Islamic centuries, as religious authorities increasingly shifted from later to earlier figures, this is consistent in that as criticism and scrutiny of Hadith increased, the propagators of Hadith began to fill in the chain to take the narration back to the Prophet. So originally they have the Hadith attributing to a follower, Right, so this is someone two generations deep. Then, later narrations, they basically take that exact same hadith and say, no, 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 it actually came from a companion. And then again, later in time, they take that exact same hadith and say, no, 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 it didn't come from a companion, it came actually from directly from the prophet. Some individuals claim that the earlier propagators of a given narration didn't initially feel the need to cite the prophet. And we're just comfortable, in essence, sharing the uh, narration from either the, uh, the, the, the followers or the uh, companion. But you have to ask, okay, if they were doing that, then that shows two things. One is that there wasn't this uh, custom of thinking that the uh, narration of the prophet held any specific weight. So that fails on that front. Uh, secondly, you have to ask, okay, if this was always the case, where is this parallel universe where all these prophetic hadiths were hiding? that no one knew of until Hadith criticism became commonplace. So we're supposed to believe that these narrations were just hiding somewhere in someone's basement somewhere, and no one felt compelled to share that until Hadith criticism uh, became established. You know, oh, this Hadith that we were attributing to a person who lived generations after Prophet was actually from the Prophet the whole time. Not only that, you know, the Hadith weren't being cited in earlier sources. They aren't being used in rituals. Then all of a sudden, they start appearing in mass right when Hadith criticism becomes uh, prevalent. In short, it just doesn't make sense. It's not like they couldn't have had access to the supposed prophetic Hadith if they existed. Because these are the same people. It's the same narration. All that's happening is the Isnad is just drawing closer and closer to the Prophet. So either, you know, again, this is just hiding somewhere and people didn't feel compelled to share it or uh, post facto, 
Someone fabricated this to again trace the Isnad, the chain of transmitters, back to the Prophet rather than just saying, you know, this was an idea that was circulating at the time by some other individual. The 13th point is the peculiar patterns inconsistent with genuine history. One of the peculiarities one notices when reading a compilation of Hadith is the obscure nature of some of these traditions that it contains. So for instance, this is Sahih Bukhari 210. It says, the Prophet ate a piece of mutton from the shoulder region and then prayed without repeating the ablution. So in isolation, one has to ask, who the heck is retaining this tradition? Who felt so compelled to say, you know what, all I'm going to retain, and I'm going to pass this down from generation to generation, is that one day the Prophet ate a piece of mutton from the shoulder region, then prayed without repeating the ablution. Right? In isolation, this makes no sense. Notice it has no context. Where was he eating? Why was he eating? Any of this stuff is just this fragmentary sentence. But once you realize that one of the discussions, one of the points of contention at the time of compilation was the question that if someone eats meat, specifically camel meat, do they have to redo their ablution? So all of a sudden, you have this proliferation of hadith about what the Prophet ate and if he did or didn't perform ablution when he prayed. So in isolation, this makes no sense. Who in the right mind, which companion was this, who went and said, hey, look, this event happened. The prophet ate a, you know, a piece of lamb, shoulder meat, it had to be shoulder meat. And uh, uh, then he prayed without performing ablution. You know, this only makes sense in the context of its time where people are having this specific debate. And guess what? So-and-so has a narration from the prophet that shows that he ate a piece of lamb and didn't perform ablution. Wow, that's amazing. That resolves our debate. So this, the context of the Hadith only makes sense in the context of uh, uh, legal debates. But in isolation, they're completely fragmentary. They're, they're strange. They're bizarre. You have to ask, who retained this? And imagine Bukhari, who's like, you know, infamous. He would travel for weeks to go and retain, you know, the, uh, to go and discover and write down these hadith that he travels and says, okay, what do you got for me? He says, listen, this is really good stuff. The prophet ate a piece of mutton from the shoulder region, then prayed without repeating ablution. And Bukhari was like, great, awesome. That's all I wanted. He didn't ask what the context was. Who was he with? Why was he eating? When was this? No, it's just this fragmentary sentence. And this isn't a one-off instance. Many hadith in isolation make absolutely no sense as to why they would have been retained, circulated, and attributed. You know, who's retaining the isnad for this, you know, piece of fragment of a sentence? But all of a sudden, in the debates of that time, during the compilation, it becomes obvious why someone would want to have this hadith. The fact that much hadith does not make sense in isolation, but only makes sense in later debates or topics of jurisprudence that was occurring during the time of compilation is not what one would expect to find if the source was authentic and not fabricated at a later date when it perfectly aligned when these topics became in vogue. That without the motivation for the legal discussion, there's no logical reason someone would pay any special attention to such obscure details, let alone feel the urge to make sure others were aware of this fact for generations to come. Interestingly, it doesn't even end there, because for each hadith that argues one side of the debate, there are also hadith that state the opposite. 
So on these obscure topics, there isn't a single hadith, but also fragments of opposing hadith as well. You know, a good example of this is regarding the proper etiquette of relieving oneself. They have all these hadith about how the Prophet used to relieve himself and what he recommended. You know, should you stand? Should you sit? What direction should you face? How many uh, stones should you use? And again, in isolation, this makes no sense. Who's there who's saying like, yes, I have to take note of this at that time? This was not a focus of the religion. But 250 years later, oh yes, it was a definite focus. So all of a sudden, you have these narrations come into being about people who supposedly documented this stuff. And again, it's not like it has the full picture. It's not like, hey, this is a biography. It's like, no, it's these fragmentary sentences that supposedly resolve some sort of religious debate. Another interesting point they brought up in this discussion was the oddity that a number of these Sahih Hadith consistently, disproportionately, rely on individuals who lived in incredibly long lifespans as sanitarians, right? People lived over a hundred years. You know, it's peculiar that so many Hadith rely on these individuals. Now, someone could argue and say that, no, this makes sense because they live longer, therefore they narrated more Hadith. But another reason is that including more long-lived transmitters creates shorter isnads and therefore gives the illusion of more reliability. Also, if there's a gap in the uh, isnads, by placing a long-lived individual, it closes that gap. And evidence for this motivation is that these longer-living narrators appear to be more prolific from hadith originating in Kufa. The reason for this is that these areas, the companion's prophet who resided there, died relatively soon after the prophet's death. So Ibn Masud, Ibrahim al-Nakil, Ali and his family, therefore they need to find clever ways to shorten their isnad. Otherwise, their hadith would not be considered as sound and authentic. So it makes no sense as product of genuine historical transmission, as if there were more longer living uh, transmitters in Kufa but makes perfect sense as a reflection of the specific Kufan needs that compensate for the creation of straightforward and especially short isnads. The historian uh, Yonbo wrote an article on this subject entitled The Role of the Mu'amarun. Mu'amarun means like the, 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 the long lifers, uh, which covers the extremely long-lived people who were inserted into the chains to close the gaps in Hadith transmission. So are we to believe that Hadith transmitters just happen to coincide with many people who lived 100 plus years? Or is it more likely that individuals who wanted to provide more validity to the Hadith they support inserted these key individuals into their chains to close the gaps and shorten their isnads? The 14th point. Hadith contradicts earlier sources. Many Hadith contradict earlier Islamic and non-Islamic literary sources and even some proto-Islamic and pre-Islamic archaeological remains. The most obvious indication of this is the rampant contradiction between the Hadith and the Quran. The Quran shows, for instance, that the battles that the Prophet partook in were all defensive measures as the Quran promotes the non-aggression principle. But if you consult the Hadith corpus, it has the prophets and the believers being the aggressors of numerous skirmishes and wars. Another example that conflicts with the non-Islamic accounts is the depiction of the religion of the Arabs at the time of the prophet. The historical and archaeological records show that for the most part, 
the uh, the Arabs were monotheistic in faith and not the flaming statue idol worshippers as depicted in the Hadith. This is also consistent with the depiction in the Quran. We see numerous verses that from a surface level, the, the Arabs of that time did believe in God. They did view themselves as monotheistic, but the Quran is calling out that their actual belief is that of idol worshippers who gave power to entities aside from God despite what they said with their lips. So their idol worship was a lot more subtle than how it's depicted in the Hadith corpus. So for instance, in Surah 29 verse 61, it says, If you ask them who created the heavens and the earth and put the sun and the moon in your service, they will say, God, why then did they deviate? In Surah 29 verse 63, it says, If you ask them who sends down from the sky water to revive dead land, they will say, God. Say, praise God. Most of them do not understand. In Surah 31, verse 25, says, if you ask them who created the heavens and the earth, they will say, God. Say, praise be to God. Most of them do not know. So this shows that for all intents and purposes, if you ask the, the pagans at that time, you know, who created the heavens and the earth, who has all control, they will say God. But despite what they said with their lips, what was in their hearts, what was in their minds was different. And you see this, that even in the Quran, it talks about the idol worshippers, the Quraysh, doing their salat and that it was a means of mockery and repelling from the path of God. So their religion, at its core, was monotheistic, but they deviated, they fell into idol worship, like so many other religions in the past have done. But this concept that they were, you know, worshipping statues and giving power blatantly to them, you know, this again goes against the historical record, it goes against the archaeological record, and it goes against the verses of the, 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 the Quran. Another point is that um, Muhammad himself is not even found uh, mentioned in religious literature except for a few occurrences and in the uh, four mentions in the Quran. And his mention doesn't become more prolific until after the second fitna in the year 691 and 692 by Abdul Malik. Uh, this shows that for much of the early history after the Prophet's death, his sayings, his actions, and even his own mention was not considered a core uh, facet uh, of the faith. The 15th point is that an oral tradition is typically a less precise transmission. Oftentimes, upholders of Hadith boast about the superiority of the memory of people in the past. They claim that the people at the time of the Prophet and the next couple of generations did not require things to be written because their superhuman ability to memorize what they heard. Historically, such claims have been proven to be false. The field of oral studies have disproven the traditional idea that oral transmission in traditional societies is highly reliable. Experiments have shown that the reason oral cultures perceive they have better recollection is that they do not have a written control on which they can base their recollection against. So because this control doesn't exist, they think they're doing a flawless job. Memory studies have shown how poor an average person's memory truly is and how memory is not meant to be a record of what happened in the past, but rather it constructs and reconstructs an event based on the individual's understanding at the time of recall. So in other words, memory is about meaning making and not meaning construction, and it's highly malleable. This is why eyewitness testimony has been proven in study after study to be highly unreliable and susceptible to contamination. Historians have shown that even the so-called mutawatir, mass-transmitted hadith, are unreliable. 
Muslims have intuitively understood this when it comes to Christianity and claims about Jesus' resurrection, but think that early Muslims are somehow different. Some people point this to the memorization of the Quran, but this is not an accurate comparison because there was always a written copy of the Quran in conjunction with the oral recitation that served as a control that if someone was deviating, they could always go back and compare against the rasam of the Quran, the mushaf. Therefore, oral memory works when there is a systematic control via scholarship, writings, institutions, checks and balances, audio recordings, video recordings, right? This is when oral memory can actually be polished. But up until then, it's highly fluid. You know, by its nature, oral transmission always maintains a level of fluidity. Oftentimes, to close the gap, if the reciter can't remember exactly what was stated, they'll use synonyms. Uh, they'll alter meanings, they'll omit uh, uh, statements. And this is all comes in practice with the oral transmission. And an excellent example of this is the various hadith describing the tashahud. So depending on which narration you go, it's going to vastly differ between one and the other. And there's some six or nine different uh, statements that are attributed to the Prophet for this you know, crucial statement that's made repeatedly when we do our salat. Uh, ironically, what's funny is every single one of these narrations makes the claim that this was taught to them as if it was no different than a verse of the Quran. Yet the vastness of alterations between these statements is so grand that no one's going to think that this is anything on par to how the Quran was taught. This fluidity in oral transmission also becomes particularly problematic because traditionalists consider hadith to be divine revelation, wahi, and therefore a source of religious decree. This is at odds with the requirements of laws that need to be concise, precise, and concrete. You know, if laws are open-ended, where synonyms are used, things are omitted, things are changed, then this can't be used as a law. At best, it can be used as a guideline. This is because we were incapable of scrutinizing the grammar, the exact words that are used, what is being stated, because all of it is subject. There is no certainty that is this exactly what was stated. But there's another major factor that can impact the reliability of oral tradition, which is that much of our memory is influenced by our current environment. After the Prophet's death, the Muslims experience a rapidly changing environment, mass migration, civil wars, famines, fights, and eventually vast wealth. All these factors have major impact on memory and how individuals recall how events transpired or what specifically was stated at that time in the distant past. This is because the people's needs and interests were rapidly changing, which impacted how they perceived past events. Historians are well aware that when oral societies go through such rapid change, it has severe impacts on their ability to recollect their own history. And it would be naive to think that Muslim society is any different than the number of societies who've gone through similar experiences. The 16th point is extreme variation and rapid mutation. Oftentimes, people equate hadith as an elaborate game of telephone, and many traditionalists object to this comparison. But in this portion of the interview, Dr. Little uh, says that in actuality, such comparisons are not far off. This is because hadith contain extreme variations of the same event. For example, 
The infamous hadith of the Prophet prohibiting for himself just to please his wives as stated in Surah 66 verse 1. According to the hadith literature, this is either uh, prohibiting uh, the eating of a certain kind of honey or sexual intercourse with one of his wives. Now that's a huge gap in the sense of what this is in reference to. Another example is the uh, farewell sermon at the final uh, pilgrimage uh, given by the Prophet and what is actually stated in the sermon. And if you look at the, the narrations, they're all over the map. But I just want to highlight one key portion as far as what is stated and how vastly different this is. So in a number of narrations, it says, I left for you what if you hold to, you will never be misguided, the book of Allah. So this is one uh, common narration that you'll see. In another narration, it says the exact same says, I left for you what if you uphold, you will never be misguided, the book of Allah and my family and the people of my house. So we added something to it. You know, in a third narration, it says, I left for you what if you uphold to, you will never be misguided, the book of Allah and my sunnah. So you're seeing that, again, this is a crucial piece of information. Now, from the outsider, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but this dictates the legitimacy of what of these facets actually hold weight in our religion. And the fourth account of what supposedly the Prophet said, it says, I enjoin you to fear Allah and to hear and obey your leaders, even if it is an Ethiopian slave. For those of you who live after me will see great disagreement. You must then follow my sunnah and that of the rightly guided khalifas. So the question is, which one is it? What did he say? Did he say to follow the, 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 the Quran alone? Did he say follow the Quran and my family and those of my house? Did he say follow uh, the, the Quran alone and my sunnah? Or did he say, no, follow the, your leaders and my sunnah and the rightly guided khalifas? What's funny is the narrations regarding following the, the, the sunnah and the rightly guided khalifas, this poses a couple problems. One is this concept of the word sunnah and khalifa, like we stated, this is not how it's used in the, uh, the Quran itself. This is a later projection of this terminology used in the Hadith corpus that is being retroactively uh, applied to narrations. Uh, secondly, if you read the, the, the hadith where it says um, re regarding following uh, my sunnah and the rightly guided khalifs, uh, it also has this statement, which I thought was hilarious. This is, and avoid matters of hadith, for every hadith is an innovation and every innovation is a misguidance. <laughs> so even in this hadith, it's saying to, to beware or avoid uh, hadith. The 17th point, artificial literary structures. Many hadith about the Prophet followed traditional themes or formulas in literature. There was this uh, video years ago regarding zeitgeist. I think that was like the, the term of it. It was, it was showing how the theme within, you know, pagan Christianity is seen throughout replete in other forms of history. And this is the, the criticism towards hadith. A lot of these narrations you see uh, traverse across many, many uh, different uh, peoples and religions. So this is a major red flag in the validity of the Hadith. So for instance, you have this uh, debate between Moses and Adam blaming who's uh, going astray that you find in Talmudic uh, literature, uh, Hadith of Moses punching the, uh, the, the, the angel of death or the prophet wrestling with Satan or the Hadith with the numerous miracles uh, supposedly conducted by the uh, prophet uh, bringing food you know, for the masses uh, or uh, his ability to not need food or drink and that he had eyes behind his head. And this brings us to the 18th point, the product of popular storytelling, which in summary says, if these are stories, then there's no reason to think that they are truthful. The 19th point, exegesis pretending to be history. 
The Hadith claim to be historical reports, but are actually treated as if they are exegesis. These are critical explanations or interpretations of the Quran. The typical argument is that the Quran is the law and the Sunnah is the application of the law. So they treat the Hadith as an explanation in disguise of the laws of the Quran. So individuals are trying to match a certain narrative with some understanding of the religion. The irony is that there are hadith where the Prophet says he should not be viewed in such ways as he is only human and prone to shortcomings. So for instance, in Sahih Muslim 572, uh, you have this incident where the Prophet accidentally prayed five rakahs as opposed to four. And his response is, verily, I am a human being like you. I remember as you remember, and I forget just as you forget. So he's saying, look, I made a mistake. You know, don't take these actions as religious decrees, uh, which is exactly what the Hadith are doing. In another narration, this is Sahih Muslim 2362. Uh, it's discussing that the farmers in Medina, they were grafting trees of the dates. And the Prophet supposedly said, what are you doing? They said, we are grafting them. Whereupon he said, it may, be, it may perhaps be good for you if you do not do that. So they abandoned the practice and the uh, date palms began to yield less fruit. They made a mention of it to the Prophet, whereupon he said, I am only a human being, so when I command you about things pertaining to religion, do accept it, and when I command you about a thing out of my personal opinion, then I am only a human being. So again, he's saying, look, you can't look at everything I'm doing in the sense of thinking that this is a religious decree as the way that they do in the traditional circles. Another example is in Sahih Bukhari, 7169, where it says, I am only a human being, and you people, opponents, come to me with your cases, and it may be that one of you can present his case eloquently in a more convincing way than the other, and I give him verdict according to what I hear. So if I ever judge and give the right of a brother to his other, then he should not take it, for I am giving him only a piece of the fire. So he's saying, look, even in my judgments, I might be wrong. I'm trying my best. I'm only human. You know, additionally, the hadith that are meant to be straight uh, tafsir, right? Uh, these aren't extrapolations. These are ones that are meant to be, hey, this is what this uh, verse means. They contain numerous contradictions. Open the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, and it's riddled with conflicting hadith attempting to explain the meaning of words and verses, sometimes from the same supposed transmitter. We saw this in a previous episode regarding his understanding of the word noon or, you know, the, the initial noon in Surah 68. The example that Dr. Little cited in the interview is from Surah 74, verse uh, 50 and 51, and the meaning of the word qaswaratan, pending on the hadith, it can mean a lion, a wolf, hunters, group of men, archers, or human voices. As if that's not problematic enough, most of these narrations are attributed to the same person, Ibn Abbas, who claimed all these different definitions came from the Prophet himself. So rather than thinking that the Prophet had no clue what these words meant, or had no problem just arbitrarily changing his mind on the meaning of uh, words or the, the interpretation of verses, it's more likely a scenario that some people looked at the verse, then came up with an understanding and fabricated a hadith to support their understanding. So again, this points to the likeness that much of the hadith was created post facto later and did not originate from the Prophet himself. The 20th point. Uh, chronic amnesia, discontinuity between the chronic milu. As touched on before, there is a recurring theme of the Hadith conflicting with the Quran. Dr. Little describes this as chronic amnesia. 
where there is a discontinuity between the verses of the Quran and the grander implications compared to what is described in the Hadith literature. An awesome example they bring up is the blatant disconnect between the Hadith understanding of Surah 112, uh, Ikhlas, and the connection with the rebuttal to the Nicene Creed and the Trinity Doctrine uh, from the year 325. The Hadith literature is completely silent in regards to this connection. So if we read Surah 112, it says, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, proclaim He is the one and only God, the absolute God. Never did He beget, nor was He begotten. None equals Him. This is a beautiful rebuttal to the Nicene Creed where they dictate this concept of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That when the verse states that never did he beget, nor was he begotten, that this is a rebuttal to this creed. But again, the Hadith corpus, uh, Ibn Kathir, is completely silent on this matter. Number 21, no effective consistent method. This is the last point. There is no effective method for determining strong and weak hadith. The reasoning as to say why a hadith was accepted or rejected by the compilers was completely arbitrary if the sole objective was historical accuracy. This is because compilers made personal judgments regarding their stance on a topic and who they collect from, let alone what portion of the hadith they choose to retain. Bukhari was infamous for cherry-picking portions of narrations. Hadith collectors would reject narrations if it was, went against their understanding, which was impacted heavily by their local traditional biases. Additionally, the metric they applied by their own standard was a personal's supposed level of piety. This is problematic on multiple fronts. Firstly, how difficult is it to determine the piety of people in one's own community for instance, consider that among the Prophet himself, there were hypocrites that he was unaware of. So in Surah 9, verse 101, which is one of the last revelations, it says, Among the Arabs around you, there are hypocrites. Also, among the city dwellers, there are those who are accustomed to hypocrisy. You do not know them, but we know them. So it's saying here, the Prophet himself didn't know. So how are we supposed to determine the credibility, the piety of an individual? If, again, the Prophet himself in his own time was not able to deduce that. Let alone the fact that we are determining the piety of people who lived, again, from when the compilation took place, hundreds of years before. Right? How difficult is it to determine the piety of an individual you're amongst, let alone someone who lived 100, 150, 200, 250 years earlier? This concept of using corroborating evidence would only work after creating a rigorous process by credible institutions that would not work determining the credibility before these institutions, these processes were established and abided by. This is why for the most part after the 19th century we have fairly good historical records. But prior to that we have a hodgepodge of conflicting narratives. So the horse has already left the barn. And not much can be done to salvage these accounts after the fact. So those are a summary of the 21 points. Again, I highly recommend to uh, watch the entire uh, discussion for yourself. Hopefully you found some of my uh, uh, points interesting. But uh, in, in summary, Dr. Little, he says that the, the, the Hadith serves one primary function for historians and that they provide a glimpse of the miscellaneous topics that the people during the time of compilation were discussing. Aside from that, all Hadith should be presumed to be unreliable until proven otherwise. And based on the 21 points already mentioned, it's hard to presume how this could be possible. But even if we concede that there may be some kernel 
that goes back to the Prophet, it's impossible to determine anything with certainty. Now the other irony is the fact that the Quran consistently tells us that the only source of religious law is the Quran alone. That the Quran is complete, it's fully detailed, it has all the explanations for everything. We do not need human beings gathering together to try to explain to us what God's word is saying in the Quran. God has given us the complete book. In Surah 2 verse 2 it says, This scripture therein there is no doubt a guidance for the righteous. Surah 4 verse 82 it says, Why do they not study the Quran carefully? If it were from other than God, they would have found in it numerous contradictions. You know, look at all the contradictions in the Hadith that we reviewed. You know, compare that to the consistency of the Quran. In Surah 39 verse 23 it says, God has revealed herein the best Hadith, a book that is consistent and points out both ways to heaven and hell. And it continues in 39.29, it says, God cites the example of a man who deals with disputing partners. That is of Hadith. Compared to a man who deals with one consistent source. This is a depiction of the Quran. Are they the same? Praise be to God. Most of them do not know. In Surah 6, verse 112 through 117, it reads, We have permitted the enemies of every prophet, human and jinn devils, to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Had your Lord willed, they would not have done it. You shall disregard them and their fabrications. This is what the devils do. They've conspired with human beings to create a corpus to try to compete against God's words in the Quran. And it continues in Surah 6 verse 113 says, This is to let the minds of those who do not believe in the hereafter listen to such fabrications and accept them and thus expose their real convictions. Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he's revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. If you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. Your Lord is fully aware of those who stray off his path. And he is fully aware of those who are guided. And to end with one final verse in Surah 77 verse 50, it says, Which hadith after this do they believe? God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, please join our Discord community. You can find the invite link uh, below. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to the uh, QuranStudyApp.com website. If you want more information, links to the video uh, and uh, detailed notes, you can go to the Cron Talk blog. And I highly recommend to check out the original interview with Dr. Joshua Little. You can find it on the YouTube channel, The Impactful Scholar. And the, the links are all below. God willing, until next time, peace and God bless.